So I don't use that word just to say anything, you know, something nice. I've met these folks. They're normal. But what, what they're doing is actually heroic. And I think for, for, for most of us, these, these heroic acts of otherwise normal people are sort of inspiring, aren't they? I feel inspired when I think about this. I feel inspired when I hear about otherwise normal people who engage in self-sacrificial behavior that benefits someone else and will never, will never benefit them. And I think part of the reason I resonate with this, part of the reason I think this is so great and heroic, is that this is actually what I'm designed for. I've been thinking a lot lately about the church and the nature of the church. And I want to just begin by talking about a couple of statements that were made in the scriptures about the church. So if we think about what is the church, there are a couple places that we could go to get a sense of what the, the biblical vision of church is. One of them would be Matthew 16, 18 where Jesus has this really brief conversation with Peter. And one of the things that he says to him, they lock eyes, and Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, this is a fascinating statement, right? What is Jesus saying there? Is he saying Jesus is going to build a church that is going to be strong enough to withstand the onslaught of the enemy? Jesus is going to build a church that will disciple people to the extent that they are healthy enough and strong enough and have a a, a vibrant enough spiritual life that the attacks of the enemy will not prevail. Is that what he's saying? I think he is saying that. I think that's one of the things he's saying, but I think he's actually painting a larger vision than this. Jesus is saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? This is a picture of the church actually on the offense. This is a picture of a vibrant church that the gates of hell cannot withstand. Right? It's the other way around. It's, the, it's, the, it's hell that's on the defense and the church that is on the offense. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. Right? In Acts, you get this great little phrase where people are very frustrated with Christians that are going from place to place and having this uh, transformative, miraculous experience. Everywhere the church lands, there seems to be explosion of miracles and people being transformed, and it's just amazing. And the people that are upset about it are saying things like, those people that are turning the world upside down have come here too. So the church there gets described as people that are turning the world upside down. So I get to thinking, why is it that the churches that I've been a part of don't seem like that? They don't seem like gate-crashing churches. What's, what's happened to me in the midst of all that? Jesus seems to have designed the church, wired the church, to engage in the epic struggles of the world. Jesus has wired the church for the big problems of the world. And yet I seem to be so consumed with things like my cell phone bill. Right, I got this charge on my cell phone bill a couple months ago that I, it was for something I never asked for. I'm reading through the bill, which I hate to do anyway, and I see this charge for some like text alert thing that I never asked for, and it's only 10 bucks, but it's really bugging me, right? So I call the cell phone company, and you know what that's like because you have to press number five to wait for a representative, and you wait for hours and hours listening to stupid hold music, and it's just awful, right? So I'm getting all worked up about this because I want this charge taken off my cell phone. They finally get on, and I can't get them to take me seriously. Like, look, I never asked for this thing. Well, I understand, sir, but blah, blah, blah. And it just is driving me crazy. So I'm thinking, you know, I got to, this is crazy, but it's actually taking up an aspect of uh, some of the spiritual energy of my life. I'm thinking things like, 
uh, do not worry about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made to God, known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. <sighs> okay. And then there's this guy, my next door neighbor actually, who's taken to parking his car in front of my house. Now, this bugs me, right? Because I get home from a long day of work and I just want to park my car and go in and he's got space in front of his house. But he's parking his car in front of my house. And it's bothering me. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get this resolved with my neighbor because he just doesn't do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Mercy. What's happened to me? The church of Jesus is wired for the epic struggles of good and evil in the world, and I'm consumed with petty, small worries. What's wrong with me? This is what I've been thinking about lately. I want to think about the world more. I want to expand my understanding of the church and think about the, the world more the way God thinks about the world. I want to become passionate about the world the way God is passionate about the world. I want to understand how it is that God has positioned us as a church in the world to be his hands and feet, to be the foretaste of the very kingdom of God in the world. So in doing that, I want to ask a few questions this morning, and I want to walk through some, uh, some of the passions of God, God's passion for the world and God's passion for justice. The question I want to begin with is a very simple one. In this world that God is so passionate about, that God has planted his church in to be a transformational entity, in this world that God is so passionate about, what do you think it is that might be hardest for people in the world to believe about God? I think it might simply be the idea that God is good. Because there's so much suffering and pain in the world. I'm sure you're aware of all kinds of statistics. Let me just rattle off a few. Today, 25,000 children will die simply because their parents can't find them enough food. How are these parents, how are their children supposed to believe that God is good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people in our world today that don't have access to health care? They're not arguing about the best way to deliver health care. They just don't get doctors. So for them, preventable illnesses are actually life-threatening. How are they supposed to believe that God is good? Or what about the millions of children that woke up this morning, not, not in the, on the floor of a comfortable church, not in a home, not in a bed, but on the streets of the major urban centers of our world because home had evaporated from underneath them? How are these children supposed to believe that God is good. And if God is good, as we believe and celebrate this morning, as we sing about this morning, then he must actually have a plan for making it believable for everyone, not just for us, for everyone in the world, that he is good. And it turns out from the scriptures, God's actually very clear about this. He does have a plan. God's plan for making it believable in the world that he is good is us. It's you and me. It's his church. He says to his disciples, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men and women that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You're it. You are the light of the world. Not you might be the light or someday I hope you turn out to be the light of the world. Not even some of you, and I think you know who you are, are the light of the world. You're it. The church is it. Right? And then the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this amazing thing. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as, God, as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. If you woke up this morning wondering if your life had significance or not, then know this. 
that God's plan for making it believable in the world that he is good is you and me. It's the church. And he doesn't have another plan. Right? So for thousands of years, this is what the church has been doing. For thousands of years, if people have been estranged from God and not known the good news that God loves them and desires them to be reconciled to him, then the church has gone far and wide to tell that story and to love people into relationship with Jesus. If people are suffering because they don't have food, then the church has learned how to provide food in the name of Jesus. If they're suffering because they need medical care, then we can provide that, or shelter. We can provide that. And in so doing, the church has made it more believable that God is good. But you know, there's another kind of suffering that I want to talk about this morning. It's a suffering in our world that's not happening because people necessarily don't know Jesus or haven't heard the story of the gospel. People not suffering necessarily because they need food or shelter or medical care. But there are people suffering in today's world because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. These are the victims of injustice in our world today. Now, before we go much further, we should talk a little bit about what injustice actually means. Because as a, as a white male growing up in the U.S., um, I can get to feeling like I'm a victim of injustice all the time. Right? Everything's sort of annoying is like an injustice. Right? Like these days, I fly enough that I'm, uh, I'm actually considered a premier traveler by certain airlines. And this affords me certain, uh, certain benefits, uh, which I quite enjoy. One of them being that my boarding passes print out with the word premier on them. And what this allows me to do is to cut through the security line, and I get to go through the, the premier line. Now, they also issue a little plastic card with this so that you can just flash the card and go through the, the, the uh, premier security line. But, of course, I don't have that card. I don't know where that is anymore. So if your boarding pass happens to not print out with the word premier on it, then you lose all your benefits, right? So the other day, I had to fly out of Dulles Airport. No matter what time you go out of Dulles, there's a nasty, large security line, and I always try to time my flights, and, and also I, I get there with just enough time to get through the premier security line. And so I get there, and I pull my boarding pass out, and of course, it has printed without the word premier on it. And so I try to tell the attendant, no, no, I'm a, I'm a premier traveler. You don't understand. And she's like, sorry, sir, the long line for you. And I'm thinking, this is terrible. This is an injustice. Well, when the scriptures talk about injustice, this is not what they're talking about. When the scriptures talk about injustice, they identify it simply as a, a, a type of sin. It's the, kind of, it's the sin that happens when someone who has power abuses that power to take from someone else the good things that God intended them to have. This is the biblical sin of injustice, the abuse of power. And we can see it all over the scriptures. Ecclesiastes 4.1 would be a great place to go. I saw the tears of the oppressed, says the writer of Ecclesiastes, and they had no one to comfort them. But power was on the side of the oppressor. This is the, the, the abuse of power. This is what happened in the story of King David. You remember one spring morning, he's up on the, on the rooftop of his palace, and a couple of rooftops over, he sees this woman that he decides he wants to have for his wife. So he abuses his kingly power and steals that woman to make her his wife and further abuses that power to kill the husband of that woman. This is the biblical sin of injustice. It's the abuse of power. And that's what David actually gets confronted for by the prophet Nathan. Nathan confronts him on his abuse of power, on his injustice as king. We could also go to Psalm 10, verses 8 and 9. Now, before I read this, I just want to encourage you. I don't know what your scripture reading practices are, but I would encourage you this week to just spend some time in Psalm 10. If you get up in the morning and make yourself a cup of coffee or tea or something and sit down with your Bible, 
Just read through Psalm 10 a few times this week, a couple of times a morning. It'll take you just a few minutes. And steep for a little while as the caffeine is infusing your system. Allow the, the, the passion of God for justice to infuse your soul. It's a helpful, it's not a, it's not, um, it's hopeful as so many of the Psalms are, but it talks about the reality of injustice in ways that are challenging. So here, here's a middle, a section from the middle of Psalm 10. It says this, they, the powerful, lie in wait near the villages. From ambush, they murder the innocent. Their eyes watch in secret for their victims. Like a lion in cover, they lie in wait. They lie in wait to catch the helpless. They catch the helpless and drag them off in their nets. Now, I became a Christian when I was about 18 years old, and I started reading the scriptures for myself. And I would read passages like this, and frankly, I didn't really get it. I didn't understand it, because I didn't have any people in my life that were having this sort of experience. So what happened for me was I developed this theory that this was just actually, it was merely an abstraction. That what the psalmist, what the scriptures were really describing were the ravages of sin that come in and catch us in their net and drag us off. Now, I think that that's true. And I'm thankful to to Jesus on a daily basis for the ways that I have been rescued from the ravages of sin in my own life. But what I came to realize later on in life is that actually this passage and so many other passages in the scriptures are describing the physical reality of millions of people in our world who have no power, who have no voice. This is actually happening in our world today. So through my work with International Justice Mission, who has been working in the developing world for 13 years now among the poor, poorest people who have no power at all, I've been introduced to thousands of people who are living this Psalm 10 reality every day of their lives. And I want to introduce you to just three of them this morning. The first one's a young girl named Shama. When we first met Shama, she was about 10 years old, but three years before that, a terrible tragedy that happened in her life. Her mom, who was uh, pregnant and was about to give birth to one of her younger siblings, went into labor and, and instantly was in great distress. And it became obvious that a, if a doctor didn't come and, and attend the birth, that she would be in big trouble and that likely she and the baby would die. So the problem was, though, the doctor would only come if they could pay a $35 doctor visit fee to get the doctor there. And they didn't have $35 because, like so many people in our world, Shama's family lives on about $2 a day. They've never seen $35 together in one place at one time. The only way you can get that kind of money is to go to the local village money lender. He'll be happy to lend it to you, provided you sell your daughter to him to work in his factory. So Shama gets sold to this uh, money lender to roll cigarettes for him. This becomes her job. She rolls cigarettes, she has to roll 2,000 cigarettes a day, sitting in one spot on the floor, basically in a very small room, rolling cigarettes by hand. She does this impossibly quickly, because if she doesn't roll 2,000 cigarettes every day, she gets beaten. Now, she does this 12 to 14 hours a day, and then gets through the day somehow, and wakes up the next day just to do it all over again. The cruel trick of it all is that it's all designed so that she'll be in this situation in perpetuity. So she's paid, she's paid very little, and from what she's paid, actually a, uh, an amount is taken back for the food that she eats. So she's actually getting deeper and deeper in debt every day. So on the day we meet her, three years later, she's more deeply in debt than the day she began. She'll be in this condition her whole life. She'll pass it on to her children. The strange thing is, of course, this is completely illegal by Indian law. But how many slaves do you suppose exist in India alone today in Shama's condition? Well, the best estimates we have is that there are somewhere around 14 million of them. How are they, how is Shama supposed to believe that God is good? 
Or what about David? David's a young man from uh, just outside of Nairobi, Kenya, about two, two hours outside of Nairobi. He's the kind of guy that everybody loves. He brings kids to church with him on Sunday. He volunteers at the local AIDS hospice. And one day he's walking home from renting a video at the local video store, and the police show up in his neighborhood. It's not always a good thing. It's uh, almost never a good thing when the police show up in David's neighborhood because they're kind of dangerous. And they were under pressure to make an arrest in a case that had nothing to do with David, but they rounded him up in their net. And they dragged him into the police car, and they made it clear to him that they were going to charge him with the crime unless he gave them all the money that he had. So he gave them everything he had. It was about $1.50 in Kenyan shillings. And when they got to the police station, they said it could go. But there was some confusion. When he gets out of the car and he's walking away, one of the police officers pulls out his revolver and shoots David. He gets hit twice, once in the arm and once in the side, and he just collapses on the side of the road, and the car drives away. He, uh, he sees across the road that there's uh, some sort of health clinic there, so he manages somehow to pick himself up and get across the road and receive treatment. But the bones in his arm were so shattered by the bullet that it had to be amputated below the elbow. So he's sitting in the clinic dealing with a post-operative infection from the amputation when the police show up. They decide they're going to charge him with a crime anyway because he's survived the shooting, and so they charge him with the crime and they throw him in jail. The, charge, the crime they charge him with is robbery with violence. And in Kenya, robbery with violence means that you can't be bailed out of jail, so he's going to be there until the completion of a tri his trial. And a conviction for robbery with violence in Kenya requires a mandatory death sentence. So now David waits in jail for the trial of his life with no one to advocate for him. Depending on where you go in the developing world, somewhere between 60 and 85% of the people in jail are sitting there without charge and without trial. How are these people supposed to believe that God is good? Especially when the people who are supposed to be there, the people who are supposed to be the ones protecting them, are the ones responsible for their abuse. Finally, I'd like to introduce you to Joe T. Joe T is a young woman we met. She lives in, in northern India, actually, and she came from a, just a difficult situation. Her father's an alcoholic. He was in and out of the family, and when she was 14, he finally left. And she decided that the best thing for her to do would be to go out and look for him, but she didn't really know how to do that. So she leaves the house and goes to look for her dad and can't find him and ends up at the local train station, really distraught, not knowing what to do next. And these three older women approach her and they say, oh, Joti, we can help you. You should come with us. We'll take you to the big city. You can get a job in a restaurant and you can support yourself. Just forget about your family. So she says... Uh, she didn't really trust these women, but she didn't have any other options. So she goes with them, and sure enough, on the train, she's given some tea that's been drugged, and she doesn't really even fully wake up until three days later to discover she's been sold into a brothel for about $285. She says, I, you can't make me do this kind of work. I, I won't do it. So they know what to do in those kind of cases. They basically locked her in a room and beat her and starved her until she couldn't resist any longer. From the day she relented, she was required to spend time with 20 to 30 men a day in that brothel and was never allowed to leave the building. And all this is happening in a city that has one of the highest HIV-AIDS transmission rates in our world today. Now, UNICEF tells us that somewhere between 800,000 and a million new women and children are trafficked into commercial sexual exploitation every year. How are they, how is Joti supposed to believe that God is good? How are we, it occurs to me to ask, to handle such stories and statistics? I mean, the church has worked hard to become a real and vibrant community. The church has worked hard to become a community that understands how to reach out to its neighbors and to love people into relationship with Jesus. The church has learned how, in compassion, to provide food and to provide clothing and medical care to people who desperately need it in the name of Jesus. But these stories just are somehow different. 
These statistics can leave us in a place of, of darkness and hurt and pain and despair and maybe even paralysis. So I think the best thing to do is just to go back to the scriptures and ask, well, how does God feel about this? What are God's expectations with respect to this kind of injustice? And we could go back and just read the last two verses of Psalm 10. This is how that psalm concludes. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Now, this is good news. This is the good news that God cares about this kind of injustice and that he wants it to stop. In fact, at the inception of iJam's ministry, Gary Haugen, the founder, wrote this book, The Good News About Injustice. When people saw the title, they said, The Good News About Injustice, what can that be? And it's simply this idea that God cares about it, and that actually matters. That actually matters. It actually changes things that our God would care about it. In fact, the psalmist, in Psalm 3510, says this about God as a... As a sort of description of the nature of our God, David says this. He says, "Who all my bones will say, who is like you, O Lord? So this is David saying, there's something distinctive about our God. There's something different about our God from any other would-be God. All my bones will say, O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the weak from those too strong for them, the weak and needy from those who despoil them. This is a nature, a characteristic of the God that we love and serve. This is something that distinguishes our God, his ability and desire to deliver people from situations just like these. So what does that mean for us? If God desires that these people should be released from this sort of situation, then what does that mean for us? What's God's plan? Well, it turns out from the scriptures, it's actually quite clear. God does have a plan for delivering people from this sort of injustice, and it turns out, We're the plan. God's church is the plan for bringing this sort of injustice to an end. The scriptures couldn't be much clearer than this. We could read Micah 6, 8, which you probably know by heart. He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117 simply says, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now, again, when I read these passages, when I was first learning to read the scriptures, they didn't make much sense to me because I didn't know Joe T. I didn't know Shaman. I didn't know David. But they seem remarkably clear in light of these stories and these statistics, don't they? But as clear as they are, I think one of the things they can do for us is leave us in a place of, well, thinking, well, really? Your plan, God, for ending injustice in the world is is us? How how does that work? I can tell people about who Jesus is. I can bring food to people in the name of Jesus. But these things, these stories are just different. But I think Jesus knew that the task he was leaving us to do, Jesus knew that for us to be the church would be an extraordinary challenge for us. And he left us these just incredibly encouraging stories in the New Testament to remind us of who he is. And I just want to talk about one of those briefly. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's in all the Gospels. I'm sure you know it. But... Jesus is out teaching one day, and it so often happens when he does, there's a whole crowd of people that follow him, and through the day it just grows, and at the end of the day there are 5,000 plus people just listening, hanging on Jesus' every word. And it's getting late in the day, and the disciples are getting concerned, and uh, so what they do is they approach Jesus, and they say, uh, Jesus, you know, this, this has been great, it's been maybe a little long, but it's been great, and what we should do now is send everybody home so they can get themselves something to eat. 
And Jesus, for whatever reason, decides, no, we're not going to do it that way this time. And he says to them, you know, what I'd like you to do is I I want you to feed them. Why don't you just feed them? And the disciples, uh, not taken aback by the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to understand what's going on, try to explain it to him. Well, you see, we'd love to do that, Jesus, but the the problem is there's like 5,000 people here, and it would take, I don't know, a half year's wages to feed them all, and we just didn't bring that kind of cash with us this morning. So clearly it can't be our problem. Jesus then, though, asked them this fascinating question. Okay, so you've assessed the situation. You see, you don't have the resources to solve the problem. But what do you have? Much harder question to answer. So they go looking around to find what they do have. And it turns out what they have is a little boy who has a sack lunch, maybe that his mom packed for him so he could go hear Jesus teach that day. And they they open up the sack lunch and they dump it out. I imagine it as like there's this flat rock. And out of the sack rolls five loaves and two fish. And this anticlimactic, like, clearly that's not going to feed everyone. And the Apostle Andrew steps up and basically says that. But what are, what are these among so many people? There's no way. This is me, right? I'm, I'm the, like, clear-thinking guy who's going to say 5 plus 2 does not equal 5,000. Like, clearly we're not there yet, right? So Jesus looks at the situation. He says, well, he asks his second question. Will you give them to me? What do you have? And will you give it to me? So Jesus takes the loaves and fish. He blesses them, he breaks them, he distributes them to the crowd, and what happens? Everybody gets something to eat. Everyone eats their fill, the scriptures say. And what do they collect up when it's all over? The leftovers are more than they started with, right? Jesus, Jesus was always going to do the miracle. It was always Jesus' responsibility to do the miracle. He just wanted them to participate in it. He just wanted them to bring what they had so they could be involved. You know, it occurs to me to ask, why would Jesus do this feeding miracle this way? Because isn't there a lengthy Old Testament precedent for how you feed thousands of hungry people? You just drop manna on them in the morning, they go out and collect it, and, you know, you're done, right? Why would Jesus do this miracle this way? I think it might simply be because he wanted to give one little boy a really cool day, right? Imagine this little guy, he's walking home, and he's thinking to himself, I can't wait for my mom to ask me if I ate my whole lunch, He's had the most amazing experience of seeing God do a miracle with what little he had to bring. And what different kind of day would he have had if he just went off behind a rock by himself and ate his lunch? This is the same Jesus that we serve. This is the same Jesus that we love. This is the same Jesus that calls us to be the church. We got to know this in in a profound way as an organization when we were getting to know Shalma. This was back at the beginning of IJM's existence, and we sent a team of lawyers to to India to investigate Shalma's situation because we'd heard about the bonded labor situation. So the team of lawyers goes and finds it very easy to document Shalma's situation and to prove that what's happening is, is in defiance of Indian law. But the problem was that in documenting her story, we found 10 other cases of children in bonded labor right around her. So there were enough people on the team to actually document those 10 as well. But the problem was, around every child, we found 10 more. And pretty soon, we uncovered a massive syndicate of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children in bonded labor slavery and felt completely overmatched. So we did what we could. We packaged up those stories into one little report, a little lawyer lunch of a report that we delivered to the court on a Friday and made an appointment to see the judge on a Monday morning to talk to him about this issue of bonded labor slavery and spent the weekend just praying. 
Somebody said we should go to a church, find some local believers who we could pray with. So uh, India being about 2%, that part of India being about 2% Christian at this point, it was somewhat miraculous that we actually did find a church, and went to a Sunday night service in rural southern India. And who should turn out to be the guest preacher at this particular service on this Sunday night but the judge we're waiting to see on Monday morning? It turns out he loves Jesus. It turns out he cares about this issue of modern-day slavery. It turns out he doesn't just want to free Shama and the 10 we had documentation for. He frees the entire syndicate of 494 kids, all out of slavery, into freedom, back into school, and into a life that they've never experienced before. Now, clearly, this kind of thing can only happen because everyone at International Justice Mission is an absolute genius. Clearly, this kind of thing can only happen because we serve a God who loves justice. It can only happen because the miracle was always God's responsibility. He just wanted us to participate, to bring whatever we had, so that he could do the glorious work he wants to do. I'm also delighted to tell you that David is no longer languishing in a Kenyan jail. It was very easy for IJM to assign a Kenyan lawyer, an IJM Kenyan Christian lawyer, to David's case. Very easy for him to prove that David could not have committed the crimes that he was charged with. And it was easy to get David freed. He actually has just finished law school, David has, and he's now finding other people, helping other people in his community find access to justice. So he didn't have to face charges, but I can tell you who did have to face charges, the police who did this to him. And this is, this is the kind of action that changes the calculation of fear in David's neighborhood. It's no longer the people like David who have to be afraid of the police, but the police who have to be afraid of their own misdeeds. And hope like that is a powerful thing in David's neighborhood. Finally, I'm just delighted to tell you that Jyoti is no longer languishing in a brothel in northern India. This is how she tells the story herself. She says, one, one day in the brothel, a young woman came up to her and said, Jyoti, I think I know a God who may be able to help, and his name is Jesus. Now, Jyoti is a Hindu young woman. She doesn't really know this God, uh, but she's willing to give it a try in her desperation. She just, not knowing how else to pray, she simply prays the name of Jesus. 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 How does Jesus hear a prayer like that from a place like this? We actually got to see this time, because within a week of Joe T beginning to pray this way, an IJM investigator showed up in her brothel, specifically looking for minors who'd been trafficked there. He documented her case, was able to take it to a secure local police contact, who with IJM's direction and help was able to lead an operation on the brothel that got her out of her nightmare, and eventually landed her in a place of Christian aftercare, where she was able to, where she was able to, to receive Jesus as her own personal Lord and Savior in the midst of her healing. Now, for some of us, I think, the idea of Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior can seem just a little abstract, but not for Joti. She actually saw the people of God show up in her nightmare and bring deliverance, bring restoration and rescue. So she decided that uh, she'd been so transformed by this experience of, of rescue and aftercare and, and this new spiritual life that was growing in her that when she heard several months later that IJM was going back into the same brothel to do another raid, she said, please, let me come with you. I want to help you rescue more girls. So she goes back on this second operation into the same brothel, into the same darkness, and helps IJM on an operation that rescues eight more girls. And in this rescue, there was a girl there named Kalindi. Kalindi said to the investigator who was there, still wearing undercover video equipment, you need to come with me right now. 
because the brothel keepers heard that this operation was happening and they hid the youngest of the children down in the hole, a hole in the basement. I know where that is and we can get them out. So the investigator goes down into the basement into this room and this is what they see. These are girls literally coming out of the darkness of slavery and into the light of freedom, all because IJM was able to show up for Joti and Joti for Kalindi and Kalindi for these girls. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us here this morning? Well, I hope it means several things. I hope it means that we will begin or continue the process of learning more deeply about the reality of God's passion for justice and his call for the church to engage. And there's several great ways that you can do that. We have this book available out, if you haven't read it yet, out on the table. And we would love for you uh, to, to take this. We'd love uh, for small groups to read through the book and do a study together. The first half is scriptural content about God's passion for justice. The second half is a whole bunch of stories like the ones that I told you this morning. Uh, it's a great way to immerse yourself in God's passion for justice and to begin asking questions about what does it look like for us actually to engage. So that would be the first way. Let's learn more. Let's be willing to be open and learn more about what God is doing. The second thing, the two questions that Jesus asks, what do you have and will you bring it to me? In the, in the parable, one thing I want to let you know that you all have is that you have influence because of the way our, our governmental structure works. So this, uh, this CPCA card that was mentioned, here's what this is all about. There's a bill that's going through Congress right now called the Child Protection Compact Act. And what it will do is modestly increase funding for the, trafficking, uh, for the, the government trafficking in persons office so that the U.S. can fund nations that are doing a good job working with human trafficking in their own context and fund organizations that are doing anti-trafficking work. It's a modest reappropriation bill. It's not a huge thing, uh, but it would be very helpful. The text of the bill is actually on our website if you'd like to read it. Um, but what we'd love to do is have you sign these cards so that we can bring them back to your senators, either Brown or Voinovich. And this is helpful to us because we talk to the, these lawmakers on the Hill all the time, and we tell them about these issues and ask them to take action. And what they say to us often is, oh, of course these are important issues, but you know what? These are not the issues I hear from my constituents about. And we want to change that. So we want to bring back signed cards so we can be able to say in these meetings, well, actually, the constituents in Ohio do care about these issues, and here's some proof of that. So if you could sign one of these cards and deliver it to the table out there, we'd be very thankful. Uh, this will also help you stay in touch with IJM. If you would not like to hear from IJM, there's a way to indicate that on the bottom as well. Um, but we'd love for you to sign that. Also, the Five Weeks for Freedom campaign, we'd love for you to, if you'd like to stay connected with this last week of the campaign, you can do that by leaving some information for us and turning that in, and uh, we'll keep you connected with what the riders are doing. You can stay on the website and watch them. There's going to be a big celebration next week as the, as the whole thing concludes. We'd love for you to do that. And there's some stuff in the brochure for how you can stay connected. Let me end with one final question. In this world that is full of people like Shama and David and Joti, one of the things that keeps me awake sometimes at night is the question, why have I been given so much? Why is it that my life is just so different? I want to answer that by uh, telling you one final story. When I was a kid, when I was uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, going through the, the awkward middle passage of adolescence, my particular affliction was that uh, I was one of the really skinny kids Maybe hard to tell now, but I was like all skin and bone. I think we call these people ectomorphs now. Um, but I had no, no discernible muscle on my body. It was just sort of bones and skin all gangly together kind of thing. Uh, I wish I had a picture. 
Um, no, I don't. Um, so the, 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 that was a challenge. That was a, a tough way to go through uh, junior high. But the, the, that was made much more complex for me by the fact that I have one of the most uh, abnormally large heads that I've ever seen. Uh, some of you have been thinking this all morning already. I know that. Um, it's okay. I'm used to it. Um, but the, the, what that was like for me then was what it meant was that walking down the halls of my junior high school, the mental picture is of me looking like a lollipop. Right? Not a great way to go through junior high school. So I, I, got, I, I liked this show on, uh, on Saturdays on TV called The Wide World of Sports. Some of you may remember. It's like the precursor to ESPN. And I liked it because they introduced me to all these different uh, forms of sport that I'd never, learnt, no, never known about before. One of the sports I got introduced to was this sport called bodybuilding. I'd never heard of it before. But I was fascinated. You've seen these guys, right? The bodybuilders that are like huge, thick necks, massive arms. They're like the antithesis of what I was, the complete opposite of me, like more muscle in one of their eyebrows than I had like in my leg. And I would think, oh my gosh, what would it be like to go through life looking like that instead of like this? What would it be like to have all that power and all that muscle mass? It would be amazing. And then I realized there's an important thing, there's an important question you need to ask about bodybuilders, and it's, it's simply this. With a bodybuilder, all that muscle mass, all that power, what's it all for? Because really, it's only for one thing. It's for posing. Because that's what they do. They pose. And it, and it only really comes in handy once or twice a year when there's a crisis in the kitchen and, and nobody can get the lid off the jam jar, and the bodybuilder can run into the kitchen and pop the lid off the jam jar. Yay. So here's, here's my prayer for us this morning, for you, for me. It's that with all of the power and privilege that we've been given access to, with all of the education, with all the hope and vision that our lives have sitting here right this morning, that we wouldn't settle for just opening jam jars, that we would allow God to, to divest us of all of the small dreams that we've been left with, and that we would allow him to infuse us with his vision for the church, that we would allow him to infuse us with his hope for our own lives, that we would allow him to infuse us with passion for the things that he is passionate about. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that uh, it is really an expression of your love to us that you invite us into this kind of relationship with you, not just where we can be loved by you and love you, but where we can actually join you on your mission. And so we ask this morning, God, that you would free us of anything that hinders, that you would allow us to say yes to you in a way that will be uh, some meaningful, small, but real step that we can take this morning, whether it's to learn more or uh, to engage in a different way. We ask that you would show us what that is so that we can be faithful to you this morning. And we ask, God, that in these small and, and faithful steps, that you would be glorified and that we would be your church. In Jesus' name.